Elizabeth Barrett is a wife, mother, grandmother, licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, eavesdropper, and emotion worker. She uses all of these skills to address the subjects that we all grapple with in this conversation with the reluctant therapist. Happy Tuesday, Elizabeth. Happy Tuesday, Hank. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Good to be here. What are we off to today? Today, we are going to explore the nature of families. So that'll take us about seven hours. (laughs) Maybe yeah. 14. we got plenty of time. Yeah, we do. Plenty of time. You know, I, I don't know if you've watched it yet, but this weekend I came across the new movie, or maybe it's a little older, Somewhere in Queens uh, with Ray Romano. And it just, it struck me in such a deep place because I teach family psychology and this beginning of the quarter, we spend a lot of time talking about families and how they're formed and how they function and how family systems have changed over the last, you know, multiple decades and also the last couple centuries. And a lot of the research around families systems currently, uh, actually, even starting in the 1900s, there was a lot of uh, researchers that claimed that the American family was doomed to be ex- come extinct, that there was no grounding for family systems. A nuclear family was uh, a mistake with the age of divorces and children being born to single parents, that that families are just going to go away and will just be a population of individuals kind of bouncing off of each other like, um, not ping pong balls, but... I guess, little balls bouncing around with no grounding and stability. And that's counter to a whole other litany of researchers, family researchers from the uh, American Family Studies Institute that say, you know, the the family systems, nuclear families are actually going strong, doing well um, in a certain segment of our population that uh, thrives in these individual family units. And in other ways, we're creating families um, that are more sustainable, that aren't traditional nuclear families, uh, but include extended blood tie family relatives and also a family that we create called forged families, uh, people that we choose. I think what really stood out for me this weekend watching that movie, and I don't want to give it all away, which kind of is a bummer about sharing the movie, but it centers around this extended family in Queens, New York, Uh, grandparents, brothers, sisters, and all the kids, and their interconnectedness um, and how they relate and kind of their families built around each other. And at the end of the movie, I, I was struck by the feeling and the reminder that families are messy, that in the best of circumstances, families are messy because we all have different personalities and temperaments and our family birth order impacts how we respond to our family uh, unit or our family system. And we all have different desires and we all have different needs, but we also share this common need to belong to something greater than ourselves, to have a community, to know that someone has your back. And when you live 
on top of each other, just as this kind of extended family did in the movie, it gets messier because there's very little room to have anything outside of that extended family experience. They go to, you know, the weddings and funerals and uh, baptisms and reunions are just like always gathering, 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 and Sunday dinners is, was a tradition. And so when you live on top of each other that way, it's easy to have conflict and um, raw nerves and uh, the desire to flee, which is very common. But at the end of the day, at the end of the movie, this sense that I've got your back is huge. And because I work in the helping professions that's geared around mental health and wellness, because every week we are trying to explore, talk about, discover new ways to maintain and balance our mental health and wellness, I, I think that we are overlooking the importance of that family unit in giving us that sense of groundedness and wholeness and belonging that's so crucial. And so I, I wanted to open up the phone line today and, and ask people about their family unit. How do you define or describe your family? Who are those people that you most count on? Are you part of you know an extended family system of blood relatives that spends quite a bit of time together and that's your support system? Are you part of a nuclear family system of just your partner and children? Are you part of a more community-based or forged family system that shares uh, commitment and intimacy and responsibilities together? Are you part of a more informal forged family system uh, that helps out, you know, with childcare or spends holidays together? I'm curious to know how people are creating their family units, and if you're not. Uh, it's something important to think about because it's really easy to love people when they're on their best behavior. And it's really challenging to love people when they annoy you. And we've created a culture that's very much about the individual's desires, feelings, experiences, uh, above and beyond the collective or the greater good of our life. And in many ways, we've set ourselves up for these epidemics of loneliness, isolation, anxiety, depression, by pursuing our individual um, happiness above all else. Because if you're only thinking about how you feel in a family system, and every time your feelings get hurt, or you feel ignored, or you feel slighted, you take that as a personal affront, and then you distance yourself, that's the setup for mental health issues. What's tricky about this conversation, I'm just going to set that up right now. What's tricky about this conversation is that there is a certain segment of the population who come from a family system that is downright dangerous, that cannot, uh, they cannot remain a part of, that for their safety, they need to leave and create other connections and other relationships. But having said that, because we're so concerned about hurting other people's feelings or making them feel left out or dismissing or, di or diminishing the importance 
of getting away from a family system that can harm you and not wanting to minimize that that trauma for people, we tend to not talk about the other important conversation, which is when families can work and should work, we need to figure out a way to put the time in and find a way to create these systems that give us a sense of belonging. Because right now we're a culture that depends on social welfare systems and public school systems and uh, group community advocates to provide the the resources that many people counted on their family for, for generations. And so no intention for minimizing anyone's traumatic experience growing up in a really uh, damaged family home. But I want to talk about the ways that we need to invest in the families that we have, even when they're annoying, even when they feel like they're not supportive or don't get you, um, why that's important and why you've chosen to make the family that you have. So that's a little that's a little uh, introduction to it. I'm not really sure, honestly, Hank, where we'll end up or go. But seeing that movie on Sunday somewhere in Queens really triggered something in me about family and the messiness and the beauty of these people that we are related to. So I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist, and you are going to be invited to join this conversation. Our number is 805-781-3875, but you can also reach me after the show by sending an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. You can follow our show on Instagram and Facebook. I think I have a picture of our family up today. You can leave a message for me there as well. You can listen to previous shows by visiting kcbx.org or podcast our show. Wherever it is you get your podcast, just search a conversation with a reluctant therapist. If you leave a review, it sends the show to other people as well, and I'd appreciate that. So I'm going to get my notes in order. And we're going to come back and start this conversation about family right here on Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. So, you know, this song, We Are Family, I can't listen to it without thinking of my sister, um, because that's one of our favorite songs to dance around and sing. I I think for a lot of families, that's probably a a signature song when there are gatherings uh, in good times and in bad times. So this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist, and I am not sure where this goes. I don't have a, a primary lesson at the end of this. I just have some really strong thoughts, feelings 
about our current state of family and how we've come to a point where we so quickly break up that family unit in search of some other shiny object, some other found family, some other found group that really gets us. I I hear that so often from people. My family just never got me. I always felt like I was the adopted one or the the one that shouldn't have been there. Um, We did tell my sister for years that we had found her down in the creek um, (laughs) and brought her home. But I don't know. It's that... That story of the trials that come with living in a family have become more prevalent um, since we've really gotten invested in this individualistic culture, many call it a hyper-individualistic culture, where most of our narrative from public school education on up is about developing the self, the individual, you are the primary unit of importance. And if you're not happy, then something needs to change. Or if you feel angry, everyone needs to hear about it. Or if you have thoughts, you need to speak them. And again, nothing is all bad or all good. But when you just take one idea and expound on it way beyond what it was ever intended, things get really out of balance. And so we've gone from this place of wanting to empower people to speak assertively and know who they are and follow their interests and create lives that feel um, authentic to them. We've gone to a hyperspace with that where everything that stands in the way of that individual track is then considered... Um, something that needs to be eliminated. And that set us up in many ways for a lot of isolation and loneliness and sadness and anxiety and despair and counseling and therapy that we see in our culture. So what's the alternative to this? David Brooks wrote an article in The Atlantic. I don't know if you read The Atlantic. Great, uh, great article. It came out a couple of years ago titled The Nuclear Family Was, Is Dead. The nuclear family is a mistake. And he looks through the history or talks about the history of nuclear families in our culture and how they really were never the primary uh, form of families, that the whole idea of the nuclear family was a reaction uh, to changes in throughout history. And that as a result, we actually had this very brief period of time from 1950 to 1965 when nuclear families were the primary family system. And then that all collapsed because that form of family was not sustainable. And we moved into the second wave of feminism in the 70s with spikes in divorce and changes in family dynamics. And then people didn't have extended family nearby and the whole thing started to crack and crumble. And then he says, continues to crack and crumble into our current history, that what we need to do is find a way back to what was the traditional family form for centuries. So what was that? Well, you know, Gabe, my intern is here today. Hello, Gabe. Hello, everybody. All right. So when we look at family form, and you took family psychology with me, you know, the the idea of extended family systems was how people survived, that you couldn't take care of a family without multiple people there to tend to the farm or take care of uh, the business. We actually, there's a, a term for these 
early family systems, which is called corporate families, and that everyone was part of a family business. There was a social unit that was all surrounded by or built around the family <clears throat> business, whether it was running a ranch or being the town, the general store in a town, or you know, being the cobblers in town, whatever it was, people belonged to a family business, and that's how they supported multiple generations. But that all started to shift with the Industrial Revolution in the 1900s. And with the dawning of factories, for the first time really in history, people left home, primarily men, were leaving home and going to work. And women were left at home to tend to the children. And that created a whole shift in the dynamic of how families operated. Because interestingly, and we'll talk about how the nuclear family favored, you know, men over women. But historically, child rearing was much more of a team effort that the kids, as soon as they could do anything, were helping out with the corporate family business, whatever that was. And they were out with the dad and out with mom and mom was working on the farm or working in the business and dad. There was very little gender inequities. Now, yes, women didn't have the power in, uh, in the eyes of the government, as far as many cases, voting rights or abilities to, you know, get divorced. But for the primary family systems, outside of what was happening, in the cultural narrative, there was a lot of partnership. And so it was that movement out of the home and into workplaces like factories or businesses that were starting that set up what considered kind of the traditional marriage form, where there is a male breadwinner and a female nurturer at home. And because a lot of these corporations and factories were away from where the extended family lived, then it forced families to kind of move away from their natural support systems and have to create their own, what we call the nuclear family, just the mother, father, and the kids. In the small sections of the, of the country, the companies that were starting recognized that families needed to have some sort of support because if the family was successful, they knew that their men were going to show up for work. So it was important to them to make sure that families needed what they had, what they needed so they could survive. So they built what they called company towns or corporate towns with houses and schools and stores. Again, all, nothing is all bad or all good. Well intended, a lot of things that didn't go well. But after this kind of split through the Industrial Revolution and people moving farther away from their families of origin or their extended family, then we go into World War II after the Great Depression, which saw a lot of people moving back in together. Um, that was a brief period of time. Then after World War II, with the great uh, rush of money into the country, the great uh, build out of subdivisions and homes. And for the first time in history, many men were getting opportunities to go to college, got the GI Bill, and it just changed the landscape of the country. But it also, it just solidified this nuclear family unit of parents and kids together in a house solo, and quite often away from family systems. And so David Brooks, uh, argues in his article, and a lot of researchers argue that that was the period of time that kicked off what many consider the greatest period of time in American history, the 1950s, early 1960s, because there was so much seemingly uh, easy and happy lives. But that really, in hindsight, was kind of a front for what was happening, which was a lot of people were really lonely and feeling very um, disconnected. And 
you can tell the success of a time period by what follows it and what follows this 1950s very kind of monocultured experience of nuclear families was the 60s revolution the social revolution, which was a lot about free love and connection and finding family and making family. And so that cry out for belonging to something greater than these small little family units was evidenced in the 60s. So I I wind you through all of that to get to kind of where we are today, which is a fairly, in many ways, destabilized family system where the nuclear families aren't aren't the prominent uh, family system anymore. There are actually more single-family homes and multi-generational homes than nuclear families. Um, but having said that, the, the amount of time that these families stay together is limited. So unlike these extended family systems that we talk about maybe in that movie somewhere in Queens, families that have lived in the same neighborhood on the same block for five generations. We don't really see that today, that people will forge families, but they're brief um, because we tend to move or we change interests or we have a falling out. And so there hasn't really been any stable unit that supports families since really the Industrial Revolution, which is a really long time, right? Mm-hmm. And... Yet we keep creating pair bonds, using the social science term, for coming together to make children, right? That's still the primary mode for people wanting to create relationships. We still see people creating nuclear families. Interestingly, those who have privilege, which is code for access to socioeconomic resources, money, housing, clean air, clean water, all those things that make life comfortable, that population, that segment of our population has actually seen their marriage, uh, marriages become stronger and more long lasting and their families much tighter and actually measurably more successful than families that don't have access to education and socioeconomic resources. Part of the reason is because families that have more wealth can hire people to come in and fill in those roles that would be traditionally carried by extended family members. But they also have less stress on the family system and more time to create relationships with the children and with their spouse and to create that, that solid foundation. So how do we find a way to create hmm, stable family units, kinship units? I don't know what we call them, forged family units. How do we in the next couple generations find a way to create a stable form for raising children and raising our adult lives and finding a place that's permanently supportive and ultimately supports mental health and well-being that I don't have an answer for and that's what I'm curious how are you creating your family systems? What does that look like for you? Our number is 805-781-3875. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I know, Gabe, I can see you getting ready to like, ah, ah. <laughs> but I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of give some groundwork on this. You know, do we return to corporate family systems? I, and also just one more thing. Did you watch The Bear, that series that just in about the restaurant? No? Okay. Well, you should. 
having said that. But this is another great example of kind of this forged family system, also extended family. There's brothers and sisters and cousins working at the restaurant and friends that have been around for generations. And one family is kind of the center square of it all. And they have this this Christmas gathering of all of those family members that is just really challenging to watch. But at the same time, you see that depth of connection that, you know, I'm I'm with you through thick and thin and we are each other's people. And at the end of the day, even if we end up in a fist fight in the front yard uh, about something, you're still my people, right? It, I might punch you out in the front yard, but if someone r- drives by and yells at you, we both go beat him up, right? Exactly. Yes. So what do you, what is your family going to look like for you? What do you imagine your family looks like moving into adulthood? Learning just how to live. I think um, you talking about the Industrial Revolution, we started to rely on machinery and certain things to, that took away families just getting up every day and taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. Learning how to hunt, learning certain livelihood skills based off of AI and all the new technologies that we have today, but simple things, cooking, growing a garden in your backyard, and learning just the simple basic needs of how to live and spreading off of that and going off those needs, I think is huge just because of how things are they, the way they are today. It's, it's very hard for people to live the way we did in the 1800s or the 1700s. Yeah, you can't, can't put the genie back in the bottle. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So I think honestly for me, I think about it all the time, me growing up learning how to hunt, fish, cook, clean, how to take care of myself, the plants outside, I think just really goes back to just being a human being. So you you would be like part of the back to nature movement? Uh, <laughs> not fully, not not uh, with a cell phone. Uh, I mean, maybe, but not fully. Just going, you know, barefoot, living in the trees, but <laughs> learning how to camp out there and teaching my kids just the basic needs that not a lot of children get taught nowadays because they're so caught up on their phones or just honestly, just the basic needs of learning how to be a human. Hank. How would you, what do you think of when you think of family? What does that support group look like just from growing up or as an adult? What what do you think of when you say family? It was important to me. I was the only child, so the family gatherings were small, but they were, uh, we definitely had our traditions, you know, especially holidays. And, you know, we almost always had dinner together almost every night. Um, Did you have cousins and aunts and uncles you hung out with? Couple grandmas, mm-hmm. um, but no. Uh, yeah, and I had very distant cousins. We'd maybe see each other once every two or three Christmases. I'd be at like a, a larger gathering, but I was always less comfortable with those. Just I'm, I think just growing up as an only child, I'm more comfortable in my solitude. And mm-hmm. uh, with two or three people, I'm I'm great. And six or seven people, I'm I'm off in the corner staring at the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's you know everyone has a different temperament for what they can handle, but also what you're used to because you grow up, whatever you grow up with becomes your thing. Our our family unit was interesting because my parents left the East Coast. They were both from New Jersey and had all of their extended family there. And they were the family that moved West and they were young. They're like 22 and 24 and my brother and I were babies. Uh, and so we had this California experience where our neighborhood was kind of our extended family. We had Thanksgiving with them and quite often Christmas with them, that neighborhood. And and according to David Brooks's research, that's called the modified extended family system, which was very popular 
in the 60s and 70s when a lot of families were starting to move for work or you know get transferred by corporations and a lot of splitting and moving across the country so those modified uh, extended families were you know a group of intentional support systems that shared in childcare or spent holidays together and like made their uh, they became each other's backup but then we would go back east in the summers and then all my cousins were there and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and I always wished that we could be part of that gathering the big Christmas they had stories and I'd see pictures of everyone dressed up and you know singing Christmas calls or doing whatever their rituals were at the holidays because we didn't do them but my parents response would be and my mom's welcome to call and negate this but my parents' response would always be, that's what we wanted to get away from. <laughs> like, we came to California specifically to get away from all of those aunts and uncles and cousins and weird relationships and inappropriate behaviors. And and so that was the that was the lens I grew up with, having, you know, oh, we needed to get away from this family system. But the older I get, the more I understand about mental health and people and and community and building relationships, the more I've come to really value the importance of making it work with the people you have and understanding what the purpose of that group is in your life and being able to find ways to support each other even when they drive you nuts, even if you disagree wholeheartedly and you know, in the last eight years, the whole political divide has made it even more challenging for families. So that feels really important to me that to move forward in the future, we need to find a way to make family systems more resilient and more long-term because this bouncing from one family group to another is harming our mental health and causing people to feel adrift. And, you know, as you mentioned briefly, Gabe, was this idea, you know, that our phones and AI and all the ways that people are just technologically tuned in. And even the show before us today was talking about AI and how it's changed our brain and how we interact. I don't know if that's serving us in the best interest of our humanity. Um, Yes, we can entertain ourselves and keep ourselves feeling like we're busy or connected by our virtual lives. But at the end of the day, does does that experience rub your back when you are sick. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. Our number is 805-781-3875. Today we're talking about family. I'm curious to know what yours looks like or how you define it. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, come back, continue taking your calls. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines And each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound 
I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist, and we're talking about family and how we define uh, what family looks like. So I'm making this argument for really paying attention to those primary relationships, that nuclear family system that we grew up in that's surrounded by and supported by our extended family relationships, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Murray Bowen, who is an early pioneer in, in uh, family psychology, family systems therapy, he recognized that understanding and knowing and having relationships with multiple generations in your life was a really healthy way to create um, solid mental health. Because he found that in nuclear families, that's a lot of psychic energy that you can't contain it in one household, especially when you have teenagers. They have a lot going on. And that people are healthier when they have other people in the family, aunts, uncles, grandmothers, um, that they can spend time with, that teach them things, that have different relationships with them, that kind of take the heat off, the intensity of the of the nuclear family system. And so Murray Bowen was a proponent of really investing time and energy into knowing your extended family so that when you had issues that needed tending to or someone was sick or someone was going through a rough time or someone needed support, that there would be someone in that extended family system that you could turn to and lean on. One of the challenges, again, is that hyper-individualism that we have and this idea that it's about being happy and and my pleasure and I get one time through life and I'm not going to be bogged down hanging around people that I don't agree with. And it doesn't mean that you have to move in and live in a big family sleep pile. But one of the quotes from the article that really has informed what I'm feeling today or thinking about today is the idea that our culture is oddly stuck. We want stability and rootedness But also, we want mobility, dynamic capitalism, and the liberty to adopt the lifestyle that we choose. We want close families, but not the legal, cultural, and sociological constraints that made them possible. We've seen the wreckage left behind by the collapse of the detached family. We've seen the rise of addictions, suicide, depression, inequality, all products of not being a part of any family system. So I think that's why I've gotten so mm, reinvigorated by this idea that we need to pay more attention to the family system. Our number is 805-781-3875. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. And I'm curious to know what that family system looks like for you and how do you get there? The other thing that stuck out for me in this article and thinking about families and relationships Um, is the idea that although we think that family systems are going to be extinct or the two-parent homes are not going to be sustainable or the whole idea of family is unrealistic, a lot of that has to do with that cultural narrative that Gabe was talking about earlier about getting all wrapped into technology and that we are following a story that actually separates us from family, that a lot of the story that we're being told right now is that we need to be productive and we need to get jobs and we need to be constantly connected to entertainment and the internet and feeling good and feeling joyous and feeling happy. We have very, very little tolerance for discomfort, for things that are not serving us in the ways that we want them to immediately. We, we want things to be happy and perfect on demand all the time. 
And relationships aren't like that. You'll have moments that things go well, but a lot of times that it's just darn, darn challenging. 805-781-3875 is our number. And is it Hadassah? Yes, this is Hadassah. Hi. Hey, thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? You probably got tired of hearing well, me babble. Well, it's, it's, it's a wonderful topic that you've got going on, and I've just had some amazing experiences with family, several, as a matter of fact. Um, and what the, the most interesting I, thing I found, and, and I'm reminded by you speaking about it, is I come from a violent alcoholic home and have a younger sister and an older brother and an older sister. So there were four of us. We scattered to the winds all over the place. Mm-hmm. Light contact once in a while. Our cousins we never spoke to. I didn't even know some of my cousins, things like that. But I'm almost 70. I'll be 70, oh, in a week. Happy birthday. <laughs> and Thank you. But, um, and my oldest sister is almost 10 years older than I am. And just two years ago, we bang- began to get together on Zoom. Mm. So mixing technology... And and the thing is, all four of us are in way different places, and we get together every single week now, and I have wow. never felt closer to my birth family, um, which is interesting because I changed my name. I'm trans femme. Um, I've spoken to you before a long time ago, uh, but I, uh, I've also made more of a family here with a, a poly family, a bunch of people who just really hang out. And we all love each other, so I've kind of got a family of choice. But now my birth family has just come in so close, too, and I could not be happier. <laughs> I just, um, things are going very well. Well, I how just does wanted that... to share that, especially I... the Zoom every week is just, I feel so close to them now. I love my older <laughs> sister, who was very difficult for me to get along with, and it's all changed. Just wonderful. It is fabulous, isn't it, how as we age, as we get older, we can let go of the things that in our childhood home we had to battle over. But when there's none of the competition or the family dynamic anymore, you can just appreciate each other for who you are. And that competition, that child, you know, sibling rivalry goes away. And it's funny because what you're describing is really common in a lot of sibling research that siblings who, you know, grow up on top of each other will scatter and raise their families and do, you know, their lives and then find their way back in, in yeah. later life. And I'm just curious to know how that joy in your voice, how has it changed you having the biological family connections again? Oh, it's, 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 I, I, I have forgiven whatever spirit, of my parents are around. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do not resent them any longer. And that helped me not to resent my ex-wife, who you know, and a wonderful woman, and I've just let go mm. of so much. I just, I feel like I've got solid ground to stand on, personally. I love it. I just, and it's, um, life is, every morning I wake up and I feel really happy. I'm, I'm astonished and happy every single day. I love it. I can hear it in your voice, and I really appreciate yeah. you calling in and sharing it because I wondered if I was the only one thinking these things. So, no, no, <laughs> it's going thanks, around. <laughs> thanks for supporting the show. Call again. All right. All right. Bye bye. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. And Bruce, thanks for waiting. You're yeah. on the air. Hi. So, uh, what happened with my family was once we we all kind of did our thing and went our own ways a little bit. And then once, you know, the everyone started having kids, grandkids for my parents. Mm-hmm. Then I started kind of arranging where we'd rent a beach house every year at the somewhere Laguna up here, you know, down in LA area, where they're for 
where I grew up. And we would do it every year. And then what my wife and I started noticing, and it, and it happened with her family too, because we also arranged a week with her side of the family. So the cousins would get to know each other because I didn't know my cousins. And what we noticed was that certain siblings, they kept wanting to protect their childhood place mm-hmm. in the pecking order mm-hmm. <laughs> into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to transfer that place in the pecking order to their children. Oh, interesting. Okay. With with the help of the parents, of, of my parents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would, we would, uh, we would, kind of voice our concern it was like well just you know it, it was kind of like well they've always gotten their way so just let them get their way because we all get along better when they get their way <laughs> and so then my wife and i what we started doing was uh we started inviting friends you know we, we have kind of a hybrid family i guess you could say as far as you know it's it's the people who we share the same values with mm-hmm. end up being our family mm-hmm. and and we love our families. I mean, we still we still do it. We still fight through, you know, and, and it kind of comes and goes, you know. I, I think it's when they feel threatened in their position, then they kind of, it rears its ugly head. But we got to the point where, you know, we, we got through it and we figured out, you know, how to deal with it. But we kind of have a hybrid where, you know, we, we our family is people who share our values. And our, yes. and our blood family, some of them do sometimes and some of them don't at other times. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because you get, you know, you get your defenses up because you know, you know, if so-and-so is not going to get their way. And then every now and then, you know, they do the opposite and they're, and they're gracious. Well, and I, you know, so you have those moments. Well, and I think you brought up a great point as well, Bruce, is the idea of bringing in outsiders to diffuse mm-hmm. the family tension <laughs> that, that, well, that, yeah, <laughs> That's what we did. We so so each of our kids was allowed to bring a friend to the beach house, mm-hmm. and some of the other family members were like, "Well, well, they're supposed to hang out with my kids," and more like, "Well, but your kids aren't welcome," you know. And obviously, we don't say it. My wife and I say, "You're like, well, they're your kids aren't welcoming to our kids, so you know, your kid wants to make sure that they get their way." And and then that, then you see your friend having a really nice conversation with your sibling. Yes. And that's really cool. And again, it leaves an opening then for you to maybe redefine the relationship with your sibling through the eyes of a friend. Because quite often the friends will come in and say, I don't know why you have such a problem with your aunt. We just had a great conversation. Or, you know, it helps sometimes to even reframe how we see our family when someone else comes in and spends time with them and sees your family through their lens and not the one that you have that always looked through. So I think it's a benefit yeah. both ways, it yeah. seems, in some, you know, in some cases. And I love the idea of the, the family reunion because the extended family support systems really doesn't require, you know, every day being together or living in the same house, although that was a traditional form for years. But to have these gatherings, like you're mentioning, the reunion, so everyone knows who each other are. And the hope is that you connect with maybe one, your kids maybe connect with an aunt or a cousin. They don't need everyone to be their best friend, but the hope is they connect with one or two of the cousins so they have that relationship. Um, Yeah, my son actually performed the wedding ceremony for his cousin. The, the female cousin that he was friends with since like fifth grade. I love that. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. That that that's the thing. I never knew my cousins, and now all my kids know their cousins very very well. We have a son that lives overseas, and cousins have flown over to visit him overseas. 
And that would have never happened without these vacations. Exactly. I, I really appreciate that because the pushing through creates something for generations moving forward that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't you know, been willing to sit through some discomfort along the way. Yeah, and, and that's and it's normal. But, you know, what is it? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. What did they say? <laughs> Discontent. But, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so it, it happens, and, and you just sometimes you have to gut through it a little bit. I mean, we 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 had some really dysfunctional family members to where we had to sit, like we our kids could not sleep over so and so's house. Yeah, and our you know, and and we and we didn't we didn't want to blow out, so we didn't give a reason. We're just like, no, busy. But when we go to family out of town, family gatherings, so and so, all the kids are at my house. I'm like, no, not yours. <laughs> and and it was it was stuff, you know, it was drug stuff and other stuff and, and verbal abuse stuff that we weren't going to let our kids sit through. But we we didn't. We realized that we don't have to. I think it's called gray gray rocking. Is it gray? Where where you're like you're dealing with a narcissist and you don't fight back. You just remain quiet. Gray stone, gray rock. There, there's a term for it. I'm but have to you're go basically, look it up. <laughs> yeah, you're basically you're not giving them fuel to make let them become a victim of your, you know, from you. Yeah, you're basically saying no, and then you just kind of stare at the wall and count to thirty, and they get bored because you're not fighting back, and they and they go the other way. But we had to do that a couple of times with family members who had history of unhealthy behavior, and we weren't going to let our kids get get victimized. Well, it's good you kind of protected the family, but also created and kept the relationships. And just before I let you grow, Bruce, I'm just curious, where, where are you in your family birth order? Oh, so, I, so I'm the youngest by okay. about so six years. I'm the youngest by six years. So uh, my, my sister is like 11 years older than me. My brother's uh, nine or 10 years older than me. And then my other brother is, uh, is six years older than me. Yeah, I, it's funny because I'm the oldest in my family system. And so mm-hmm. when you were talking about um, people want to continue their pecking order where they were, I can absolutely mm-hmm. appreciate that being the oldest member of my family, that I'm not going to give up my power to my younger siblings. <laughs> <It's> either, so, <laughs> so it made me laugh. I was going, you must be the youngest in your family because that's <laughs> from my oldest position. I'm like, darn right. I'm the matriarch. <laughs> so. Well. There's dynamics change. Every now change. and then, throw mm-hmm. them a bone. Okay, every now and then. Not <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate, I appreciate you calling, and I appreciate your honesty. Bruce, have a great day. All right, thank you. You too. Bye-bye. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I put the call out there. What does family look like to you, and, and how do we maintain those connections when we are also highly individual. We've been, we've been encouraged and raised to be individualistic. And I think that's the challenge for the idea of these intense family, extended family connections, is that we've moved away from this idea that the collective is more important than the individual. We have created an entire cultural narrative around the individual's most important. But we also, I hope, are recognizing more and more that we have to have a community of people to call on in our lives to connect with because to try to do life solo creates a lot of mental health issues. I mean, you were talking, Gabe, about, because you grew up in a big rancher community with some large families. So what did you see? Um, We have a really good set of family friends, and they have, I think, over 75 or something crazy family members, um, all in the Central Valley. And growing up with some of those kids who have become my best friends is – Family is everything, no matter what you do. And there, 
and I could, it gives me chills because <laughs> I can feel it right now that there's just always this unwritten rule mm-hmm. about I have your back and you talking about it in the beginning of the show. And no matter what we're going through, I mean, I've had arguments, fights like brothers, mm-hmm. but to me, that's my family. I mean, being able to get involved in their wolf pack or whatever you want to call it nowadays, their tribe, mm-hmm. their big family tribe is uh, you learn a lot and learn how to rely, rely on each other and learn from other people's different point of views because not all of them do the same thing from day to day. They have somewhat the same values and beliefs, but they all don't follow the same 10 rules or, or whatever it is on, on a piece of paper. They all love each other and they all lean on each other. But and they're Don- not a corporate family either, right? They don't all work in the same family business. No, yeah. they're all working different things. But the family gatherings, the calendars, the, the big group messages, I mean, it's it's so welcoming. And just to see that nowadays is something that is incredible. Knowing that I have them in my life is something that I value and would want to mirror going on with my family. And that makes you think of kind of the structure of our family. I mean, I called myself the matriarch. My parents are still alive, but I, as the oldest child, have kind of stepped into that space. And my parents have kind of, uh, given up some of that that center of the family square. And so I organize all the family gatherings, and I love that part of it because I care a lot about everyone gathering and being together. Uh, I know there's a lot of eye rolling over the years by my siblings and maybe some of the cousins like, oh, why do we always have to go do this? But this year on Thanksgiving for the first time, everyone was kind of old enough. We had an adult table and I put all the cousins together on the other end of the yard and they had the best time just chatting and sharing stories and showing each other, you know, what they were doing. And like, all of the time I spent the last 15 years or so trying to just hold Mm -hmm. this together and say, keep showing up, keep showing up. This has to be your priority. I feel like that finally, that message has kind of seeped into the next generation and and matters quite a bit to them. But the other thing that my husband and I have done, because we don't live in the same town with my parents, you know, they they live all, my family lives all over California. Um, But what we did raising our kids was we had our family forged kin friends that became part of our unit and tend to be younger people that we got to know and we kind of bring into the family and spend time with them and that that has kind of made this beautiful kind of large uh, interesting life for us and I keep track of these young people that are now in their 30s and you know have kids of their own and I feel are still part of this Band. I don't know that that's you brought up that word earlier, and I really like yeah. this like this band of people that I feel like are in our universe. Um, and when my family comes together, and if our extended family kin that aren't blood relative hang out, I really believe that's a, another important piece. Is when my sister in law comes to the family gatherings, she sees my parents through a whole different lens than I do, and has a great time with them, and they have a great conversation, and it makes me see my family. Uh, with a softer eye because she doesn't have the history. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and our number is 805-781-3875. And we're talking about family and family bonds and how we saw a lot of disruption in these strong, strong, unquestioning extended family units that as the country was founded and uh, immigrants were coming to the United States. And, you know, Western Europe had very individualistic family systems before 
um, that started happening in the United States. When they would come to the United States, they were meeting up with the indigenous populations, the tribes that were very much about family and working as groups and relying on each other and building these you know, very strong systems. And it was very foreign to the families that were setting up towns in the United States to see these like collective groups working so strongly together. And so there's been this kind of conflict of what is best for raising humans. Is it this group effort, the collective, where we put our own needs second to what's in the best interest of the group? Or is it our individual lives that are most important and that we just kind of piece together those people that support us uh, throughout our life in whatever way that we want to be supported? Because as I mentioned earlier in the show, Statistically, those forged families are not generally long-term, that they cover periods of time. For like being in a fraternity, it covers that period of time during college, and you're really tight, and you can't imagine ever not having that relationship. But as you grow and change, it's very rarely that that group stays super tight as your main family focus. And you move into your job, your career, and you might create a neighborhood, the modified extended family as you're raising kids. But as your kids grow, those relationships change and kind of end, and we go different directions. And so when you don't have that strong base of an extended family blood relationships, quite often you're going to find yourself having to reinvent your strong family systems, your forged families, every time your life circumstance changes or there might be a falling out or you move away. Those relationships don't tend to stay permanent uh, as soon as you move out of that situation. And so the thought that I want to leave you with today is this idea about how we envision what the priorities are in our lives, like what's most important. Because I've been reading a lot about modern marriages, and we'll do a show about that coming up because there's a lot of uh, research coming out about polyamorous relationships or open monogamy, which means uh, monogamous marriages that have relationship outside, and this idea of more uh, open relationships and moving away from this pair bond, committed monogamous relationship, and this idea that we're never really meant to stay with one person or one relationship or one family for over a long period of time. And <laughs> What's interesting about that research is that those relationships statistically also are not long-lasting or permanent, that they tend to be very fragile, that it doesn't take much to topple open relationships that aren't bound together by this like strong, deep commitment uh, to each other over all else. And so this, um, this quote came up in one of the articles that I was reading that has really stuck with me for the, this week, and I wanted to share it with you. Commitment is making a choice to give up some choices. It is choosing to be constrained for something better. And I think that that idea is really important to consider because as much as freedom of self and freedom of choice and freedom to follow our bliss and our happiness and our passions feels like it's the most important thing, at the end of the day, it can lead to a really lonely existence if you continuously find yourself at odds with those people that you're in relationship with, but you stop growing or they feel constrictive or you want something different. If we spend our whole life trying to have ultimate freedom of ultimate choices to be what we want any moment, any time of the day, 
we run the risk of leaving a lot of destruction and chaos behind us and ending up feeling kind of lost and adrift. And so not to step back into a Puritan life, but to consider that sometimes a constrained life might be a better and more well-lived life. Commitment is making a choice to give up something, to give up some choices. It is choosing to be constrained for something better. This has been a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can send me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. Leave me a message on Facebook or Instagram. You can listen to previous shows at KCBX or podcast our show to share with others. As always, thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you for listening and supporting Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. We at the family reunion. Telling jokes and playing spades Uncle Dave is on the barbecue grill Grandma bragging about the blanket she made For the new baby on her way Even though the daddy ain't really ready This child is coming anyway yeah she made her famous potato salad somehow it turns out green maybe it's all the scallions could be the celery Everybody